Church family, can you please rise and grab your Bibles? And we will be turning to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. John 3, verses 1 through 15. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and You do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we this morning will grow not just in our understanding deeper of your word, but will grow deeper in our affection for Jesus Christ. I pray that we will understand deeper that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God, the Son of man has come down, has condescended, has taken on flesh, has come to live, has come to die in our place as wretched sinners who was raised and who will come again. And we look forward with anticipation and we say, come, Jesus, come. It's in his matchless, his precious name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Jeremy, I thought I gave you the easier passage to read, but I am very glad you got some names as well. So what you didn't know is I wrote them all phonetically last week, so I looked intelligent, hopefully. There are times when questions must be answered. Nicodemus knew this point well, for he was faced with the reality of the Messiah perhaps coming to earth 
All he thought was about to be shaken. His immense knowledge was to point to a clear plan and to a clear person. Yet, what the religious leaders, he is first among them, were about to have their neatly understood systems of knowledge challenged by the Lord himself. John 2, let's go backwards before we go forward. John 2, verse 23. Look in your Bibles, please. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. As you recall, Jeremy spoke last week. But their belief was not true belief. Their faith was not true faith. And how we know that's true is we go to verse 25 or 24. Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Key point. Jesus doesn't look to the outside to understand the inside. Jesus knows what's inside man. And here comes the man at night to ask Jesus some questions. Sometimes there's questions that must be answered. John chapter 3 is divided into two portions. For those noticing on your bulletins, I did not put the main point. My apologies. It's been one of those weeks. So I'm going to get you to write more than normal. John chapter 3 is divided into two portions. The first 10 verses is Jesus dialoguing with Nicodemus. This is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. But the second half of it is also the dialogue with Nicodemus. But it outlines God's plan for salvation. Perhaps everybody in this room and online was taught to memorize John 3, 16. Thank you for participating. Did you ever wonder who that was spoken to? Nicodemus. And so here we go into one of the most treasured, one of the most widely heard parts of Scripture. And yet I wonder if it's one of the most understood parts of Scripture. And so my goal is that we answer questions today. The main idea is simply this. Regeneration. I'm going, to write, I'm going to say this slowly so that you can write it, hopefully, fastly, if that's a word. Regeneration, bracket, being born again, end of bracket, is a supernatural work by God. Regeneration, bracket, being born again, is a supernatural work by by God, not a work, I continue, not a work, in which man contributes anything to their saving faith. Let me read it one last time. Regeneration, bracket, being born again, end of bracket, is a supernatural work by God, comma, or semicolon, not a work in which man contributes anything to their saving faith. That's the big idea. The outline is four parts, earthly credentials, 
Three questions by Nicodemus, three answers by Jesus, and heavenly credentials. And so, let us begin. There are times when questions must be answered. In preparation for this sermon, I asked myself six questions to get ready. Six questions that I wrestled with this text so that when we go through this, we can hopefully learn deeper God's word together. Point one, earthly credentials. Who is Nicodemus? First question I asked myself. And why is he coming to Jesus at night? Perhaps you know Nicodemus' name. Perhaps you know a little bit about him. Maybe you didn't know that only John's gospel talks of Nicodemus. Did you know? 90% of the book of John, as we said months ago now, is unique to the book of John. This is one of the stories that's unique to the book of John. We're going to encounter Nicodemus three times, probably over two years. And so here we enter the first conversation with Nicodemus. This next time we're going to meet up with Nicodemus is in, is in John chapter 7. And then finally, we're going to see Nicodemus in John chapter 19. And where do we see Nicodemus at the end of Jesus' life? With Joseph of Arimathea. Contending for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea has a tomb, a place to put the body. And Nicodemus wants to embalm the body. But here we have the man asking questions. Look in your Bibles with me to John chapter 19. And I want to show you where it's going to go eventually in Nicodemus' life. John chapter 19, verse 39 to 42. John chapter 19, verse 39 to 42. Nicodemus, reading from the New American Standard Bible, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Back to John chapter 3. This is the night that's referenced in John, eventually chapter 19. This is the interaction where the Jew, the teacher, approaches the rabbi, the Christ. The word Pharisee, you may know, comes from a derivative, which means to separate. And so the Pharisees were known as the separated ones. And Nicodemus, we learn... From John 7, verse 49, we learn that, G that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. But he wasn't just any Pharisee. Now, Josephus was a historian around this time, and he wrote about the Pharisees. And he estimated there were around 6,000 Pharisees. Now, some of you remember the little childhood jingle, the sad you sees, right? So do you remember how it goes? 
Sadducees are sad, you see, right? And why are they sad, you see? For they did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Pharisee, I want you to remember, not as fair, you see, but just the word see. And so what the Pharisees were like, these were a people that wanted to be viewed outwardly, extrinsically in their religiosity. These were a people that wanted to be seen as religious. They kept the Mosaic law. They adhered to all the customs. Do you remember the story where Jesus is on the Sabbath and he heals? Do you remember the group of people that turned to him and said, whoa, 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 Jesus, not on this day. And Jesus says, whoa, wait a second. This is the Lord's day and I'm about the Lord's business. They were more concerned by the extrinsic, the external keeping of the laws than they were of what it was inwardly. And the Pharisee of Pharisees, do you remember who that was in the Bible? Paul. But here we enter in with not just a Pharisee, but a member of the Sanhedrin. So there's around 6,000 Pharisees and the Sanhedrin are a select group of the, these are the, the real, let's call them the Supreme Court, if you will. It's not a great analogy, but it's an analogy. And so these were the ones that to the tribunal, if you were brought forward, it would be to the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was not just a member of the Pharisees, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And their ex Extrinsic, external religiosity meant that they closely followed rules, closely followed all of the Mosaic law as best as possible. But do you remember what Jesus calls these leaders later? You brood of vipers. Strong words. Jesus is not concerned with outward behaviors. He's concerned inwardly and knows what's inside of man. That's why we had to go backwards to go forward. And in Matthew, we see these Pharisees more concerned with Sabbath rules than they were for the Lord of the Sabbath. Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin are a ruling body of Jews in Israel in the Greco-Roman period, for, uh, for context. And one commentator adds that the Sanhedrin, um, as a Supreme Court, consisted of high priests, chief priests, elders, and scribes. And from that select group of 70, Jesus, in verse 10, is going to call Nicodemus the teacher. So this is the guy who's sitting with Jesus. But he comes to him when? At night. And so the second question connected to the first point is, why does he come at night? And I think it's pretty obvious. If he comes during the day asking questions to the rabbi, they're going to go, don't you know these things? 
Why are you coming with questions? You're the one that's supposed to know. But he is curious. And so the context in Israel, for those that study this, you'll know that traditionally a lot of the commentators and a lot of the the folks that have written on this believe that it probably happened in a secluded place inside of Jerusalem at night and likely on a rooftop. And so the scene is this. Here comes the teacher to the rabbi and they're face to face at night. And he has questions. He has lots of questions. Three are recorded that we know of. And so we enter into the scene which which is a, a beautiful scene. And he calls Jesus, look to your Bibles. In verse two, this man, backwards, that connects to the 23 to 25, this man came by night and said, Rabbi, we know, who's the we? Pharisees. They're aware what's happened already. They know Jesus is on the scene and they come to him or he comes to him by night as a representative to try to figure out what's going on. So we know, continue in verse two, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs, plural, that you do unless God is with him. Now, Rabbi, you'll recall from earlier sermons has a connotation of a teacher but also a religious teacher. And so what you're seeing here is a uh, a, a sign of respect. Now, sometimes there are signs like this where rabbi is used, where it's used derogatory, like, oh, rabbi. But that's not what I believe Nicodemus. I think Nicodemus is genuinely curious. I think he's genuinely sitting in front with a curiosity to Jesus. And how do I know that? Look to verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, full stop. No question was asked to Jesus. Keep that in your mind as we go through the rest of this. That's one of the critical verses of this entire part. Jesus answers a question not asked in verse 3. Nicodemus comes to him by night. There are questions that must be answered. Three of the questions, point two, come in rapid fire by Nicodemus. And we're going to take the questions on their own, and then we're going to go through them and answer them one by one. So let me read to you the questions that Nicodemus does ask Jesus. So the first time that Jesus answered, there was not a question, but this time there is. Verse four, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Now, I don't know about you. Is there a more shocking question that was asked to Jesus' entire ministry? I mean, this is a pretty vivid question asked to Jesus. Now, some have speculated that this is a rhetorical question that this is not a physical question, that this is a spiritual question. Some have argued that it is a physical question, that he just totally doesn't get what Jesus said to him in the prior verse, which we'll address. For now, let's just camp that out, that that's a pretty bizarre series of questions, is it not? 
Jesus, in response to the genuineness of Nicodemus, speaks in an analogy. Now, do you know what the difference between an analogy and a parable is? So let me give you a grammatical lesson that I had to learn myself in preparing to deliver this to you. A parable often, do you remember a point in the Bible where Jesus stops speaking clearly? He starts to codify his message with a central truth so that some of the people in the audience understand and the majority don't. There's a central point in a parable which is usually needing Jesus to clarify to the recipients or by divine inspiration. So parables are serving a purpose of conveying truths but disguising them from some. An analogy is a different. It's a comparison. And here we see a comparison between two things. Jesus is going to compare earthly things to heavenly things. Points one and four. The temporal life to the eternal life. And he speaks analogously of the purpose or an explanation or clarification and not for confusion. Nicodemus has real questions to Jesus. And Jesus, and I think this is something you need to pay careful attention to, does not rush this interaction. Jesus is at night with the teacher, but he's going to teach all of us in this room some of the most profound lessons ever taught in Scripture in the next 14 to 15 verses. In fact, he lays out the plan of salvation so clearly that we can use that particular point of Scripture for all of our witnessing and be accurate. That's critically important. The, first, the final question Nicodemus is presented in verse 9. Look down. Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? So, we now have to transition into point three. What are the answers? And we're going to spend the majority of our time in points three and four. Two answers are given by Jesus in verses five through eight and in verses 10 through 12. But the third answer, we're going to come back at the end and answer a question not asked. Let's go to verse four. Reread with me if you would. Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you. Let's stop there for a second. Why does Jesus answer truly, truly? Truly, truly comes from the Greek words amen and amen. Now, traditionally, after I pray, what do we say? Which is an agreement before God. But Jesus doesn't do that. He starts with amen and amen for a distinct purpose. Do you know what it is? What is to follow is truth, but the one that is conveying it is the truth. Let me make sure that's clear. He is stating that I have the authority to tell you what's going to come is going to shake and rock your world because I am the author of truth. 
That's what's coming. Truly, truly, I say to you, pay attention to truly, truly is in your Bible. Jesus is going to rock Nicodemus's world. He's going to turn it completely upside down to the point that he says, how can this be? And Jesus is going to answer three times in this passage, truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus kindly, patiently provides answers to Nicodemus' questions. Continue on. So what is he telling him? Truly, truly, I say to you, what? Unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone that is born of the spirit. The underlying Greek word for wind and spirit comes in the Old Testament from the word ruha. In the New Testament, it's called pneuma. Pneuma is the same word for wind and spirit. Jesus' first answer is a word play that Nicodemus would have instantly caught that we lose in English. Numa, numa, numatos, numatos. He's using it again and again, five times in four verses. And he's telling him that which is born of the flesh is flesh. It comes from the underlying word sarx or sarkos. And that which is numa, numatos, is the spirit. And he uses an analogy of wind. And he says, look, you go outside. We have it all the time here, it feels like, in the fall, where we just get winds and they call them something which nobody really knows, I'm sure. But we don't know where it comes from, do we? And we don't know where it goes. And so it is with the Spirit. There's a mystery. There's a divine mystery that Jesus says, look at that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit, and then uses the, the beautiful wordplay of the wind blows where it wishes, and you do not hear, and you hear the sound of it, meaning you recognize it, important, but you do not know where it comes from. What does Jesus mean by that? What does Jesus mean by that little statement? Those that are born of the Spirit show evidence of birth of the Spirit. But those that are born of the flesh are of the flesh. He delineates, he separates, he says, look, the flesh is the flesh and the Spirit is the Spirit. Do not be amazed of this. Nicodemus, you should get this. The Old Testament tells of this. It's ruah, ruah, ruah. And you're asking me this question? Nicodemus, in verse 9, comes back with his final question. But how can these things be? And Jesus answers him in verse 10. And look what he says. Are you the teacher of Israel? Do you realize how high praise that title is? This is the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not know what the Old Testament was pointing to. And I continue, and you do not understand these things. 
There is a stark contrast that Jesus is presenting here between that which is born in the flesh and that which is born in the spirit. Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, but he does not fully comprehend about physical and spiritual birth. Not that the temporal, physical life, but the eternal life that comes from belief in the Son of Jesus in verse 15. Nicodemus in verse 9 says, what? How can these things be? Jesus answers in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel? And then he adds a second truly, truly. Look what he says in verse 11. We speak of what we know and we testify of what we see and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This is a slap in the face to Nicodemus. You realize that? How in the world, if you can't even figure out what I just told you from the earthly analogy, how are you going to figure out what I'm going to tell you from the spiritual analogy? Have you ever been there in your witnessing to people? They just don't get it. So what does Jesus teach us in this? That's what I want you to focus on now. So what does Jesus teach us? Doubtlessly, Nicodemus has, has for many years, think of this point, for many years, Nicodemus has been teaching others the way towards salvation, has he not? He's the teacher. So he would be the one clarifying for others, hey, this is how we rightly handle God's word. Conditions that have been cast into the obedience of God's commands, devotion to God, submission to the will, outwardly, externally, external. But Jesus looks into him and says, you're missing it. Here, Nicodemus is experiencing a new condition that he has never been faced with before tonight. And he is astonished. He is amazed. And Jesus knows it. To which he responds in verse 9, how can these things be? Genuine disbelief. Genuine questioning. And the inability to see what's being said. And here's the key word. Regeneration. Regeneration. Jesus answers the entire puzzle with one key word. It's a theological term, and if you divide the word into two, it means this. Re, again, generation to come or to be born. And he says, you need to again come, again be born. To which Nicodemus says, how? This is the prerequisite for truly understanding what Jesus is meaning. No contribution, Nicodemus, Chris, me, you, audience, congregation, online, have any ability to understand what I'm going to say to you unless you're born again. You must be born from above. That is what is so new. That is what is so shocking. In the Pharisaic legal system, they've never heard of such a thing. It's impossible. It's impossible. But God. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5 through 8. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, which he loved, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. 
1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Do you catch it? It comes from him, not from us, not from our ability. Nicodemus was rocked. He understood the Old Testament better than anybody in the room. Anybody. This was the guy. And here Jesus looks him deep into the eyes and says, unless you are born again, regenerated, you're not going to get this. And Nicodemus is undone. But what gives Jesus this authority to say such things? Look to verse 3, verse 5, and verse 11 quickly. Verse 3, verse 5, and verse 11. And what do you notice? Jesus uses, truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you three times. And what does he say? Look to verse 3. Jesus answers a question not asked. This is the third answer Jesus gives. And if you want to understand this passage, look to verse 3. Jesus answered and says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The second truly, truly comes in verse 5. Jesus answered, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we've seen and you do not accept our testimony. 25 times in the Gospel of John, truly, truly exists. Three of them are in this passage. Regardless of which version of the Bible, some will say verily, truly, or very truly, truly, truly. All of them come from amen and amen. All of these are authoritative statements that Jesus says, I am the one that is speaking truth to you. So pay attention. We use amen, perhaps carelessly. In some churches, you hear it audibly, right? If you go further to different parts of the country and you preach a part that somebody likes, they might yell, amen, amen or amen, brother. You hear that depending where you are, right? That's an agreement. Jesus isn't looking for an agreement. He is speaking the truth. And Nicodemus isn't comprehending it completely yet, but he will. In fact, did you know, here's a Bible trivia test for you. Of the 6,000 Pharisees, roughly, what are the only two that are said to come to faith in Jesus Christ? Paul and Nicodemus. That's it. So you have a pretty big religiosity group externally, extrinsically adhering to this and guess what? We don't know of anybody else. I pray that there were more. But the truth is, this group were so concerned about keeping the law, keeping the system, keeping the legality of it, that they were missing what it was pointing towards. I pray that's not us today. But Jesus starts a statement with amen and amen. The one who's speaking has firsthand knowledge of this information. Now we're going to get to the final Peace. Jesus answers a question not explicitly asked in verse 2. Notice, go backwards. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. 
Jesus answers, listen to his answer one more time. So he's just said, we know that you're a teacher. We know that you do these amazing signs. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's not the question that was just asked to him. But Jesus, knowing the heart, doesn't answer that statement. He goes right to the heart and says, look, you're not going to be able to understand what you just said to me in verse 2 unless you're born again. Jesus answers the question that's not asked. Nicodemus claims that he can see, he claims he understands the identity of Jesus. He says, look, we know that you're from God. But guess what? The people in verse 23 to 25 just said, many believed, but they didn't believe. Many claimed faith, but they didn't have faith. Jesus informs that spiritual regeneration produced by the Holy Spirit is the way, not a way, that a person younger, older, can be reborn spiritually, eternally. And Jesus clarifies the spiritually dead cannot see the things of God. It looks like foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2.14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. Let me speak to the believers in this room. If you think for a second that your knowledge in any way contributed to your faith, repent. You had no bearing to your saving faith, nor did I. The only reason that you are saved is that God opened your eyes, took your heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh. One day, by the grace of God and through the power of his spirit, our hearts became alive. We went from darkness to light, from dead to alive, spiritually, but real. And this must impact every aspect of our lives. What once dominated our affections no longer must. Nicodemus was wrestling this night. He wanted to know the truth. My question to you believers is this. Do you live like it? Intentionally, daily, progressively? Not perfectly. But do you live like that's true? Like the old self is gone, the new self has come. That this is what dominates us, not the things of this world. Not the external things, but the internal things. Jesus clarifies that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Are you born again? And if you are, then live like it. Let me tell you how simple this analogy of Jesus is. Jesus is the master storyteller. You ever notice that? He takes the obvious and says it in a way, and you say, well, that, that makes sense. But Jesus does this. He uses an earthly analogy as the foundation of salvation. It's solely a work of God. This analogy of the flesh and the spiritual things stops a legalist dead in their tracks. It is so effective. 
He knows that the person in front of them is so much more concerned with the externality than the internality of what's going on that he literally aims right through an analogy that says flesh and the spirit and he divides them and says, look, it doesn't matter what you do externally. It's what's happening internally that's going to regenerate your heart. But how can this be? All his life, this legalist, in his case, this Pharisee, this, this teacher, was trying to achieve heaven or trying to achieve self-righteousness. And here our Lord says, it's all for nothing, meaningless, useless. Can you imagine Nicodemus' interaction? Here he came to try to probably get questions answered to maybe be encouraged. And Jesus has just rocked his world. Nicodemus, church family, what role did you play in your birth physically? Think about that question for a second. What role did you play in your physical birth? Zero. What role did you play in your spiritual birth? Zero. That's the point. That's the point of what just happened in this passage. And the, is exactly the idea that the Lord is using in this analogy. To assume that you have anything to do with this physical birth is insane. You catch what he's saying to him. Look, you didn't have anything to do with that. That's what Jesus just said to him. And guess what? You have nothing to do with this. So you think you can read and understand all of this and it contributes to that? Gone. Absolutely earth-shattering gone. It's absurd. And that's why our Lord chose this analogy because it is so clear, so vivid. And the imagery that Jesus uses is so graphic that it is memorable. Do you notice how Jesus often does that? He'll choose something so graphic, so repetitive, or so vivid so that you cannot forget what he has said. He's the master storyteller. Another one in the Bible that you may recall is this. The camel cannot go into the... Right. So some people have tried to speculate is the camel and the eye of needle and is the gate in Jerusalem. Guess what? That's not the point. It's so impossible that it's vividly, absolutely memorable that that's what it's like trying to do, trying to do without the regeneration that comes from above. It's impossible. That's the idea. Something must happen to you. You cannot do it. You cannot contribute to it. The word in verse 3 and 7, for born from above, Above, born again, may be translated as anothen, may be translated as above. Did you know that? Born again is translated as born from above. That's the point. Jesus is saying the origination, the source is from God, not from man. Your birth happened to you, you had no part in it. Your spiritual birth happened to you, you had no part in it. Or in this case, he prays, I pray, for those that do not have a spiritual birth yet. And Nicodemus is asking questions. Maybe some of you are this morning. The message here is that this is totally from God, which obliterates 
all righteousness, all religion, all ceremony, all ritual, all sacraments as having any contribution. It's what theologians call monergistic. It's something that happens to you and God does to you. It's God alone. You're not going to enter the kingdom of God because you try harder or you're a better person or more religious or more moral or more philanthropic or more virtuous. It doesn't matter how much you give to the church. It doesn't matter what you do in terms of charity. It doesn't earn you a place into the kingdom. Amazingly, encouragingly, Nicodemus does not recoil from Jesus. Did you notice that? I think he leans in at this moment. Look to your Bibles. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus just asked him in verse 12. Just look back. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? Here's the teacher. Jesus has just told the teacher, you have no ability to understand what I'm going to tell you. And what does Jesus do? He goes and tells him. Playbook for us Christians. Jesus doesn't stop right there, but is now in the next nine verses going to outlay the clearest plan of salvation, perhaps of anywhere in the entire New Testament recorded. And the person sitting in front of him at this point, most likely is not regenerate. But Jesus goes ahead and tells him, and guess what? Aren't we thankful for that? And John records it, and aren't we thankful for that? And we share this. And the most treasured verse in most of our childhood memories comes from the one recorded in John only. To Nicodemus, who is likely not regenerate at this point, and Jesus spends time to tell him the plan of salvation. As Moses is lifted up on the serpent, verse 14, in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is the cross, Jesus is now just foreshadowed way back then. By the way, do you know what happened in Numbers? The serpent. So the serpent on the cross was this. God had sent in the fiery serpents. A lot of people are dying. The cross, or the, the serpent was held up by Moses, and those that looked on it were saved physically. And he says, the Son of Man is going to be held up like this, And it's going to save you, not physically, but spiritually. He's now paralleled the two like this and brought it to a beautiful conclusion of which Nicodemus is likely leaving this moment shortly after going, how can this be? Do you think Nicodemus would have caught this analogy from numbers? In two seconds, this is the teacher. What do you mean? What are you talking about, Jesus? Numbers 21, verse 6 to 9, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people died. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because they had spoken against the Lord. Intercede with the Lord and they removed the serpents from us and Moses interceded for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard and they shall come about it and everyone who is bitten, who looks at it will live Moses made a bronze serpent, set the standard, and came about, and the serpent bit any man. When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Boy, isn't God amazing. Boy, this, doesn't this take you back to Genesis? Serpent, garden, there's so much in here. We don't have time. The people of, 
this illustration or analogy is that Moses lifted up the snake so that they looked on it will live physically once again. But those who look to Jesus in faith will live spiritually and eternally. Finally, we must reference one last verse. We missed it, but it was intentional. Verse 13. No one ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Jesus here is showing that he is God. His redemptive work, his promised salvation, promised by God, was coming. And it was in him. Jesus took on flesh, John 1.14. He's able to redeem, lifted up on the cross. He's both fully God, fully man. Very God, very man. The incarnate, the son of God, the son of man, the Christ, the Messiah. Here he is. His authority, his credentials derive from his identity in the second person, the Trinity. Jesus, in this beautiful portion of John 3, is presenting the plan of salvation to Nicodemus patiently at night individually as far as we can tell. This plan we continue to celebrate every Sunday and we're going to celebrate it next Sunday in a really special way. So, if you're an unbeliever today, and you've heard this, and this is moving you, come talk to me, the elders, please. We would be honored to journey along this with you, clarify questions, pray with you, care for you. Do not wait. If God is giving you more time, don't think it's forever. Use your time for the glory of God. Repent of sins, believe, and turn like the exhortation that was given to the believers in this room so that we no longer live for our old selves. Nicodemus had lots of questions. Jesus had lots of answers. He even provided an answer to a question not asked. We have lots of time for your questions. We would be honored to journey with your faith, with your questions, clarify them, and to care for you because that's why we exist as a church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, oh, there's so much more in this story that we could flesh out, so many more points that are relevant. We could spend weeks in this interaction. But what we have seen, what we have learned very clearly is that our being born again, our regeneration as believers is from you in which we stop, we pause, we praise you, we thank you for that. Help us to be a people filled with humility, filled with gentleness, filled with time to share of the good news of Jesus Christ, to invite others to this Christmas season, these services. And may we herald Christ, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected until he comes.